You know, I'm a former journalist, you know, sort of semi-retired journalist, and I started getting work opportunities in Toronto. Mm -hmm. It was after I started writing for New York-based hip-hop magazines, like mm -hmm. The Source magazine. People are like, hey, this guy knows something about hip-hop culture and youth culture and pop culture, having conquered some parts of the U.S. Welcome to this week's episode of Black Tea. I'm Andre Demise. I'm Milena Williams. If you're new here, this podcast is where we get into the uncomfortable but necessary conversations in Canada's Black communities. So we'll talk about what made us happy this week, then we'll get to the subject matter, and then we spill a little bit of tea. But before we get into that, to get us started this week, we have our guest, Dalton Higgins, joining us for our happy segment. Hi. Howdy. Malena said that something made her happy this week, but I feel like it's about to make me very uncomfortable. So what what you got? It's really funny. So I was like thinking about how we met and just like know each other, I guess. Mm -hmm. And do you remember when I ran into you at the AGO last year? The AG yeah, yeah, yeah. At the uh, the Jungle concert. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So my friend that I was with was like, when she met you, she's like, that's Andre. I'm like, yeah. And she's like, so are you sure nothing has ever happened between you two? And uh, I was like... Ew, no. <laughs> and, and, but like, said, she believed me when she hadn't met you. And I was yeah. like, why would you feel that way? And she's like, she didn't even call you good looking. She called you daddy. And I was oh. so upset. Like, it made me physically sick. I'm so sorry. <laughs> she called me daddy? Yeah. And she I didn't mean, believe me. And then I, I, then I was like... This is why, you know, certain words that we use in a sexual sense, you have to like wall them off from words that we use. I take daddy seriously. Do not do that. No, but the thing is, I'm an actual father now. Oh. So I'm going to hear the word daddy very differently. Thank you very much. Ew. Introducing this awkwardness to my life. So, well, no, I was just like, should I call him and ask him if I'm sure? She was convincing me like, what? Oh, okay. No. Um, so your friend, I said, what's up? We don't um, like her anymore. Oh, you don't? Okay. Yeah, she's well, done, but... Oh, word. Shout out to her. <laughs> I feel bad now. It's fine. Did I... Did, like, did, did her... You had nothing to do with you. Oh, I was going to say, I, I didn't introduce that discord into your friendship, did I? Maybe because I didn't give you to her, she was mad. Uh, oh, well, I mean, I'm not single anymore, but... I <laughs> I really wish he had served me up to your friends back then, but it's okay. Oh it's God, all good. So well, I'm glad that made you happy. It made me a little bit happy, but also a bit awkward. Okay, good. Hi, Dalton. Hey, Mel. What made you happy this what week? What made me happy this week? Okay, well, this happened last week, but uh, it sort of bleeds into this week, or it's actually timeless. You know the hashtag ball is life? Well, it is life. Um, mm -hmm. I'm like a former baller. I went to this school in Toronto called Oakwood Collegiate. Go Barons. Oh, okay. Uh, winner of multiple city championships, so... My happy moment this week, it's, uh, it's basketball related. Uh, it's uh, ex-Raptors coach Dwayne Casey um, I don't returning. Like where this is, I don't like where this I is going. I heard about this. <laughs> you know, like, I mean, so if you believe in redemption, um, you know, karma, hubris, I kismet. Don't, I don't believe in any of those things, as a matter of fact. <laughs> then you will appreciate this Dwayne Casey story. I mean, he, mm -hmm. you know, he gets, uh, he wins NBA uh, Coach of the Year. Yes. Um, you know, coaching Toronto Raptors. Uh, best uh, record in the regular season in, in the franchise's history. Does all the things a good coach is supposed to do. Right. And gets run out of town. Got fired. Um, and then found <laughs> some uh, gainful employment mm -hmm. uh, coaching the Detroit Pistons. Uh, returns back to Toronto to play his uh, ex uh, Toronto Raptors franchise that ran him out of town, and they, they defeat didn't the run Toronto him Raptors. Out of town. That is some, some <laughs> bad. Got I like straight that. fired. <laughs> he just got straight fired. Okay. Yeah. So that's my happy moment. You know, if you believe in yeah, tales of redemption that's and great. You know, so it was such a good feeling. Him Dalton, coming. I'm gonna need you to get the. Out my studio. Why are you Get mad? Because I'm a Raptors fan. And listen, Ugh. like 
I, li- I like the Wayne Casey. I I I I like Demar Derozan. I I haven't lost any love for them since, as Dalton would say, we're run out of town. I haven't lost any love for them whatsoever. But I want my team to win. So right. I'm, now, I'm I'm glad you find it so great that we he started our losing streak. Thank you. Well, here's the thing. I mean, when you look at culture too, I mean, Dwayne Casey is one of uh, you know there are not nearly enough uh, sort of you know black African American uh, head coaches in in the NBA. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking to myself, uh, looking at it through a sort of culture prism, you know, uh, what more else uh, did the guy need to do? You know, the right. it's a ba- you know he led the Raptors to the best record in the in the franchise's history, won NBA Coach of the Year, mm-hmm. and then gets fired. You know, so that's uh, just looking at it uh, from a diversity out the playoffs that's again. Dope. Right, sure. I mean, if we dig a little deeper again. You know, <laughs> right. It didn't happen just once. Well, you need a winning team. To- There's no convincing these Raptor junkies, uh, Raptor groupies, <laughs> Raptor uh, you, you know like season to- ticket holders <laughs> that are sitting. Would you like to host the show? We I would. can leave. It's okay. Uh, yeah. I, okay. Well, <laughs> okay I'm glad that made you so happy. Um, we'll move on to my segment. It, yeah. This conversation did not make me happy. I'll tell you that. <laughs> uh, so Jill Scott, uh, Madam Jill Scott, uh, the the light of my life the artist to whom so many of today's millennials were conceived, who also plays like an awesome bad character on the TV show Black Lightning. Somebody, and this wasn't a recent concert, but somebody pulled up a concert <laughs> that Jill Scott did. And during her performance, let's she got, let's call it, rather animated. You have to see it, though. You actually have to look at this. Like, as <laughs> Jill is performing, she's like caressing the microphone in a very suggestive way. And then it goes from just caressing the microphone. Okay, I'm just going to come out and say it. She was, she was basically like, it looked like she was performing oral sex. On nothing in particular, the thing is like, there was no guy there. There's no like performer that she could simulate it with. She was simulating sex with a microphone, but her technique was on point. It yeah, looked- maybe that's the future. We don't even need men to do it. <sighs> I'm down with that. <laughs> okay, Miss <laughs> Jill, thank you very much for that. I needed that in my life. When I say things like, we're living in a hellscape, I'm usually joking about that. But where it comes to Toronto's art scene, I am not kidding about that at all. The best and brightest of our artists who spend years producing groundbreaking work in the 90s and 2000s, well, they're mostly forgotten. And the ground that they broke, sonically, visually, and with the written word, mostly got paved over with gentrified Canadian mediocrity. At least, that's my opinion. But maybe I'm wrong on this. Maybe there is some hope for the future. So joining us today to guide us through the modern artistic landscape in Canada's black communities, we've got author, publicist, and unofficial Canadian hip-hop chronicler, Dalton Higgins. Dalton, welcome to the show. Hey, how's it going? Pretty good. Man, where do you even like start in the conversation on art in Canada's black communities? Because it feels pretty bleak right now. What do you think? Yeah. Yeah, what I would say is we're a bit, uh, you know, delusional um, in, in, in Canada in general, uh, t- Toronto in particular, where mm. I'm based, in that uh, we spend an awful lot of time uh, patting ourselves on the back for mm. uh, being multicultural. And uh, we know that, uh, you know, statistically speaking, Toronto is the most multicultural city on the planet. Mm. That diversity is not at all reflected that, as far as uh, in, in, um, yeah. across like different sectors, right? So we're talking about, let's talk about literary arts, for example. Yeah. You know, I've, I've written six books, mm-hmm. so I know of what I speaketh. You know, I've kind of been around the block. How you just introed the segment, it just brought me back to when I was working at the uh, Harborfront Center, um, yeah. which is uh, considered, you know, Canada's center of contemporary culture. Mm-hmm. And they run something called the International Festival of Authors. And mm-hmm. I just remember working there years ago, and uh, this is at a time when I cranked out a best-selling book. It's called Hip Hop World. And it's a book that talks about uh, hip-hop, youth culture, globalization, 
And, um, you know, people over there booking it, you know, like, so I'm on the, co- you know, I got the cover of the Toronto Star, which mm-hmm. is Canada's uh, largest uh, daily newspaper. Mm-hmm. And um, I, they, they didn't even call me to do anything. You know, like, you can what? moderate a panel discussion, you can do a session, you can do yeah. a reading. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, so while I'm there, you know, I'm on the, co- you know, the cover of Toronto Star, right? And there's a literary festival that's supposed to be representing the interest of uh, Canada's literary communities. And nothing, you know, I didn't get called. And so um, that was sort of my wake-up call. That is uh, not Much like uh, Dwayne Casey, ex-Raptors coach. We don't show love. NBA coach of the year. And, uh, <laughs> we don't show love. Yeah. No, we don't show love. Well, well I just happen to be well, uh, I'm not gonna know, show black into African descent. If you're going to you know? keep like, talking about Dwayne Casey <laughs> <laughs> in this manner. So, so if you look at things, you know, meritocracy, you know, you're selling books. Because this is what we're in the industry to do is, is to push products, sell books. Right. And uh, one is somehow thinking that that is going to generate more interest and opportunities in the on the Canadian literary landscape, uh, you're in for uh, a surprise, you know? Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, we just have so much, I, obviously, you know, so much raw talent in the city. What do you feel like people don't know about that? Yeah. I mean, I uh, I sat on this uh, racial equity advisory committee with the Canada Council for the Arts. Mm. And what we were tasked with doing was uh, doing a scan of the Canadian art scene, you know, multidisciplinary arts, right. meaning, you know, theater, uh, drama, uh, literary arts, uh, dance, music, et cetera, et cetera. And, and what we found, yeah, it was chilling, you know, it was chilling in that. Th- here's the conundrum in Canada. You know, when you're looking, you want to, there's a saying we say, if you see it, you can be it. Growing up here, you know, if you're from a racialized community, young, uh, you know, black boy, girl, and you want to be, you know, a, a producer, you know, like yeah. in dance, you know, you want to be an editor. Black editors, black producers, they're scant to non-existent, yeah. right? So, so, you, so what you're forced to do, like myself, is uh, seek inspiration and mentorship elsewhere. So when I started out in the game as a journalist, like all of my mentors, mm-hmm. people whose works, you know, who I can call it a, you know, moment's notice uh, to get some mentorship, advice, tips on how to navigate the literary marketplace, um, they're not here, yeah. right? They're in Harlem, yeah. New York. They're in Los Angeles, California, Oakland, mm-hmm. California, you know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So this yeah. is, uh, that concerns me. But that know? richness, you brought it back. A lot of people don't come back. Right. They leave. So, I and mean, I just feel gone. like, yeah, yeah, but you've connected so many people. And like, this is, I guess, kind of what you do, right? Among the many things you do. Yeah, yeah. Kind of well, infusing that global lens that you have. Yeah, I mean, I think I, I do it out of both choice and necessity. Right. Yeah. So mm-hmm. the easy thing is to get the hell out of Dodge. You know, that's what most <laughs> Canadian success stories that, are, hate, that look I like me. I hate that. Why, I do, why, like, why do our artists have to leave this country in order to make a fortune and then come back and be celebrated? Why can't we celebrate them here? Right. Yeah. For one, it's a it's a, it's a Canadian thing. Um, you know, in general, as far as the macro is, is mm-hmm. most Canadian artists. You look at comedian Russell Peters, like he's mm-hmm. he's nowhere to be seen. He's out in L.A. doing, you know, yeah, you, you get out of Dodge. Um, so it's a Canadian, a uniquely Canadian thing. But we don't have forget sort of, that Russell Peters also said that, you know, he didn't really feel welcome here in Canada. Like he grew up in Brampton, which is like the brownest yeah. community in this country. Right. And he still felt like he was not welcome here. But he, he goes to the United States and he feels welcome as an American. That happens to all of us. Like, we have this, like, hater, like, we almost convince ourselves that we're haters and then we keep hating. Yeah, yeah. No, totally. I mean, here's a funny story. Like, in in one of the, I wrote a book about Drake, you know what I mean? Like, um, it's called Far From Over the Music and Life of Drake uh, and it's a biography of his life and, in the story, like it's there's some really weird things that happen. Some of which you know, like yeah. you know the Juno Awards a number of years ago. Like he mm-hmm. he hosts the Juno Awards, and this is just an anecdote, just to drive home the point. <laughs> so you know, at the time he hosted Juno Awards, the 40th edition of the Juno Awards, and he got nominated uh, for six awards. And um, in the United States, he's the biggest thing since sliced bread, right? right. So yeah. he's dominating the playlist, the charts in the United States, right? Which is like the epicenter of you know uh, so-called urban music, right? Mm-hmm. right. 
And um, yeah, so he hosts the Juno Awards and gets nominated six times. Doesn't win one award. <laughs> While he's being celebrated <laughs> elsewhere. While he's like the biggest artist in the United States. You know yeah, what I mean? Yeah. And, and elsewhere, right? Yeah. So this is kind of like, these are the types of horror stories that I can, you know, regale you with. Yeah. <laughs> right? And this is the reason Drake is never going to come. He's not, he's never going to come back to the Juno Awards. You know what I mean? Maybe that's, yeah. also that's what reliable why sources is tell so me. Sad. He is not ever coming back to the Juno Awards. Like he was that slated by it. 100%. Well, yeah, I would be yeah, too. Anybody would be. I would be living. Yeah. I mean, we joke about that, but I think about, um, you know, how, how other Canadian artists who don't have the amount of wealth and prestige that Drake has, how it feels for them when they end up getting slighted by their own country. I think about somebody like the writer Nalo Hopkinson, who you might remember wrote the book Brown Girl in the Ring, which was my introduction to Afrofuturism. Like I wasn't the Octavia Butler generation. This was like, for me, it was a brand new thing. And Nalo Hopkinson, after she wrote the book, experienced poverty on a level that a best-selling author should never have to experience. She was actually homeless for a time. She had some, some health issues. And then, you know, when her health deteriorated, her employability went down. And she, like, having written so many great books, was homeless. Right. And now she's, I think, okay, she's back on her feet. She was hired by University of California, Riverside. So she's an assistant professor there. She left. She had to leave Canada to live. <laughs> well, we see that in Nalo Hopkins. And yeah, she's a, she's a national treasure. Yeah. I mean, she's just one of the leading as well, far as she sci-fi. She should be a national treasure, but yeah. we don't treasure her. No, we do not treasure her. So, And, and the key thing you said there is uh, she's, she got offered a gig at uh, University of California, Riverside. Like, yeah. not here. Not University of Toronto. Not no. York University. One would think that they'd be, uh, you know, headhunting, want to scoop her up immediately. You would think that yeah, like York or even like Dalhousie, you know, which yeah. has like yeah. a large contingent of, of uh, black students. You would think that they would want to put her in front of potential writers. I read but her. But that never happened. I read here. her no, at, no. in a course at York. Reading that book was our reading. So she, yeah. she was obviously well respected in academia. Mm-hmm. Um, and just to see a black woman get treated like that is devastating. Our narrative as, as creatives, you know, uh, you know, yeah. as far as journalism, you know, I'm a former journalist, you know, sort of semi-retired journalist. And that, that's my narrative, though, right? I started getting work opportunities in Toronto. Mm-hmm. It was after I started writing for uh, New York-based uh, hip-hop magazines, like mm-hmm. The Source magazine, mm-hmm. which was at one time uh, considered, you know, the, the Bible of hip-hop culture. It was, yeah. And uh, Vibe magazine, right? Yeah, that's when I started Vibe. getting work back here. Yeah, yeah. Is when I, when I was writing for American magazines, you know what I mean? And then, yeah. then people are like, hey, this guy knows a little bit of something about hip-hop culture and youth culture and pop culture. Yeah. Right? And but that's you what, already did. Yeah, I already did. But here, you know, is locally, it, it, yeah. it wasn't, uh, yeah, celebrated, They won't rewarded. recognize your bona fides until it's acknowledged by the Americans first. Precisely, yeah. That's when I started, that's when the work opportunity started going through the roof in Toronto. Right. Is after having conquered some parts of the U.S. Wow. I want to talk a little bit about just your career and your writing. And you you just take so seriously history and like our history and emphasizing it in your work. Why has that been important for you to locate and use that lens? I mean, I have this, uh, you know, love affair with uh, with black uh, black music and, and and people, obviously, you yeah. know. And I think, you know, we talk about uh, the predominant uh, the music forms that are essentially dominating the playlists, especially now. Um, we're talking about Afro diasporic musics, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, certainly led by hip hop, R and B, and that's no longer arguable or open to debate. 
Um, when you look at uh, the top-selling musics in Canada and the U.S., it's yeah. uh, there's no di- nothing to dispute, where right? They, look at the, the sound scans of the board. It's, uh, they say the numbers now are you know th- between 33 to 35 percent of all music consumed, yep. hip hop and R&B. Finally, right? <laughs> yeah. So more than one third of all music's consumed, our music. Yeah. Now, one of the issues I have as far as chronicling our culture, being a you know documentarian of our culture, is that a lot of the people that are telling the stories of our culture, of our music, of the of our people. Uh, they don't look like us, yeah. you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so the so a lot of the chroniclers of uh, black music, uh, sadly and unfortunately, are non-black. So I, I have this kind of thing where, um, you know, I'm living it. I'm breathing it. Right. Uh, my father used to come home, you know, after work and, you know, crank reggae music, you know? Yep. Uh, I was born here. My parents came here from Jamaica in mm-hmm. the late 60s. I just know a ton more about reggae music, soul music, R&B, and hip-hop you can't teach than that. your average, no, yeah, you no, than your average non-black um, cultural critic right. mm-hmm. that, that dabbles in, in black music and an ethnomusicologist. Right. Okay, so that's part of what it is, my love affair with like mm-hmm. black music and, the, and black people and the music that we create. If we're going to use a historical lens, I mean, we're not even going that, back that far in history to talk about artists from the, you know, the 90s, early 2000s and so forth. So I notice a difference between the way that uh, Toronto bigs up its own artists and the way that a city like Atlanta does the same thing. So I don't like I can't go back and locate uh, the sounds of like a Drake or Tory Lanes. I can't locate that in like Mishimi or Devon or Maestro Fresh West or any of them. It seems like every generation of artists that comes out of Toronto has to basically like start over from scratch. But then in Atlanta, you have that influence from the Dungeon family. So you know you about the Dungeon family, right? Like yeah, like Outkast is part of them. Frank and- Goody Mob. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Goody Mob and then the producers that came out of that. So like Sleepy Brown basically had like an influence over so many uh, artists that came out of Atlanta. And then yeah, that family, like that group of, of associated acts influenced people like Migos, influenced Future, influenced Zaytoven. Like there's like an A to B to C connection between the artists that they produced in the 90s and 2000s to who we see as popular today. Toronto doesn't have that. Like why that disconnect? Right. Yeah. I mean, I think if you don't, you know, part of the reason I am a bit of a, you know, like not a bit, a lot of a documentarian as far as a local uh, black Canadian music is is for that reason, Um, is uh, we have to better document and then share, of course. Like Mm -hmm. I wrote, my my first book was a book, uh, Master T, uh, for people Mm -hmm. that grew up on Much Music, you know. So, you know, he was the one of the, you know, he was actually the leading uh, VJ at Much Music uh, for a number of years. So, you know, when Madonna is in town wanting to do that, you know, intimate one-on-one, he's conducting the interview. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Lenny Kravitz, Janet Jackson, J-Lo, it goes on and on. Britney Spears, yeah. whatever music genre you're into, he's the guy doing those in- intimate one-on-ones. Uh, he was the first man I saw on TV that they lit in front of a camera with his long dreads. Like, oh, never, absolutely. Yeah, it wasn't until him. Oh, for sure. No, he was uh, black and proud, proud and black. Oh, yeah. And he had locks and everything, right? He was not uh, watering down anything yeah. that he did. You know what I mean? Very proud of his culture and roots. And and the funny thing is, you know, so in that book, you know, so part of my responsibility, you know, as a documentarian is to sort of document those histories and then disseminate that info to, to the new gen, to millennials, mm. to, you know, the average 19-year-old. So they understand sort of what came before them, right? Yeah. We did this interesting project at the end of 2017 where I basically, um, there's a house in Parkdale in Toronto uh, owned by this organization called Band, yeah. Black Artist Network and yeah. Dialogue. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, what we did is to commemorate, you know, uh, hip-hop history in, in, in Toronto, um, I threw a bunch of like OGs, you know what I mean? Like I threw like, you know, Mishy Me was there. 
right? Um, ghetto Concept, yeah. right? Yeah. A group from Rexdale yeah. that had won, uh, you know, back-to-back Juno Awards back mm-hmm. in the day. Big up and salutations, Rexdale. Yeah, Rexdale, mm-hmm. exactly. Yeah, that's that's my mean? neighborhood. Yeah, we threw him in a room with, um, you know, Claremont II, who's this fantastic, he's like, what, 20, 21 yeah. years old? Yeah. Oh my God, I went to that party. Yeah, 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 yeah in the house, great. you know? Yeah, you so all of these, like, you know, 19, 21-year-old yeah. rappers and, like, 40-somethings. Cardinal Official yeah. was there, all right? The, yeah. the Canadian ambassador, the original. He was, Cardinal is an interesting character because he was celebrating being a Torontonian and a Canadian rapper yep. before it became cool, sexy, or saleable. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. and he keeps doing trendy. it. And he keeps He's doing amazing. it. He's amazing. Because there was a time when you, you know, like, yeah, I'm a Toronto rapper, I'm a Canadian rapper, that's frowned upon Ugh. outside of these borders. He was he was doing it way before yeah. it became, now it's just cliche. It's just like, okay, the six, six is ins, you know, yeah. even like Norm Kelly, who I despise. No, so no, good no, riddance, you know, like he's like, yeah, no, the six no, dead and all this crap. You know, good riddance. I'm glad he's out Any opportunity to on Norm Kelly, I will yeah. always appreciate that in this studio. <laughs> yeah, totally. Yeah, yeah, good riddance. Exactly. Norm Kelly. We're going to have like a Norm Kelly good riddance party. <laughs> I'm so disgusted. Speaking of like culture vultures that do damage to the community, what effect does an organization like Spotify, for example, which is a Swedish-based tech organization, what effect do they have on the broader music culture? Like, for example, let's take hip-hop off the table for a second. Have you ever tried to listen to a dancehall playlist on Spotify? Not so much, you know. Mostly hip-hop, R&B, soul, Afrobeats, not so much dancehall. I don't recommend ever doing that to yourself. <laughs> it's seriously, like, go go look up dancehall on Spotify and see what comes up. And let's take it even past Spotify for a second. Let's talk about the effect gentrifying hip-hop has. And I hate to say this because I don't think it applies to people like, say, DJ starting from scratch, who is incredibly good at what he does. And also, he's a Brampton man's. But the amount of clout that people who are, who are not from the culture, who are not Black themselves exercise on black community productions. Like, what effect does that have on sort of distorting what passes for popular in hip-hop culture now? Because, you know, who's, you know, one of the top-selling acts right now and the most influential hip-hop artist? Post Malone. Yeah, yes. Oh, God. Facts. What does, that, what does that do? Like, right. Ha, ha, like, what what does that do to the culture? Yeah, as far as starting from scratch, he's an interesting figure in, in that he's a fantastic DJ. Fantastic yeah. mm-hmm. DJ. Listen, and, I'm and, and, and taking nothing guy. away from his talents whatsoever. <laughs> yes. But the fact is, he, he's, not, he's not a black person. Yeah, for sure. Now, here's the thing. This yeah. is where it gets uh, complex and contradictory. Okay. Is as far as our own community, uh, respecting and studying our own craft, mm-hmm. um, is that happening in the way it should? No, I would say absolutely not. Mm-hmm. So what you have here is I can be, uh, you know, sort of a blacker than thou, young woman, uh, young man uh, that professes to be a DJ. Uh, but has not studied the masters that come from our community. Right. Mm. So you come out now DJing um, these these haphazard, um, mediocre oh, uh, DJ sets, yeah. call yourself a DJ, call yourself a DJ of black music, then you have somebody what? like a, a DJ, Scratch on the other hand, yeah. he's studying the masters, the yeah. white guy. But there's another thing about studying he, blackness too yes. that mm-hmm. is a problem that yes. sp- mm-hmm. goes beyond there's music as well. There's a difference between well. studying and surveillance Be- and I feel like there's right. a lot of surveillance. And But I also feel like we do a lot of like giving away our culture if yes. people deserve it. Like this whole cookout I'm. I've never been endorsing that. Like there is oh, no cookout. I, I love inviting people to the no. cookout. Oh yeah. I don't like it. Oh yeah. Come on down to the cookout. Get yourself a plate. Our culture is actually special and beautiful yes. and unique. And you're not 
invited. And yeah. if you're so thirst to be invited, that means that like you have identity issues. Right. It need, well, our culture, it needs to be our music culture in particular, because uh, I'm going to talk you know, a lot about literary arts and music, mm-hmm. but it needs to be preserved. It needs to be studied. It needs to be worshipped. Yeah. It needs to be in our, in our own homes. But it you can't know? be yeah. worshipped. It's, yes, it's not yes, enough. Yes, yeah, it's not yes, enough yeah. to be, you know, like, yeah, we have to actually appreciate and study versus studying uh, European music traditions, right? But if mm-hmm. we're... Like, if we grew up in these colonized, you know, households right. that are saying, hey, let's go to the opera. Let's go to the Canadian Opera yeah. Company. Uh, Jamaican family, Guyanese <laughs> family. And you're not invested in studying uh, mento, ska, right. reggae, dance right? Because right? yeah. this is what happens here. A lot of our parents have these sort of colonized kind of like, hey, let, I'm going to take my son to Toronto Symphony Orchestra. Right. What about your own culture but and history? My, and my whole thing is, it's just like, I don't care how much you learn about our culture, you're never going to be able to teach us. No, I, I totally, I echo, I second that notion. Yeah. You know? um, Sorry, studied, was that was supposed to no, be a no, question. I, no, I, I, again, I mean, I, I was a... I studied at York University in Toronto, mm-hmm, um, English literature and mass mm-hmm. communications. And I remember my fourth year, you know, doing like a thesis on on historically black musics. And and my, uh, you know, professor who led, you know, my thesis was, you know, was a white woman. And um, I, just her tone, her, the way she sort of, her point of view, her frame of reference, yeah. like her entry point to, like, I don't care how many, you know, PhDs, graduate work no. she did. Um, it was just radically separate from how I viewed it. This is your, music. This is yeah, your like, culture. Like, yeah, Rachel Dolezal it. cannot give that to you. No, no, I'm sorry. <laughs> Shout so you out can, to whoever so you can study, You can study gospel music till yeah. you're blue in the face. Yeah. Um, I grew up some parts, you know what I mean? The black right. church, you know, although I don't go to church now, but I'm just like, no, I live this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know what I mean? I'm living and breathing this thing. So it's different from like some academic, non-black academic telling me what uh, gospel music was, is, and should be. Right. What I wanted to get to in this question was like, what sort of an effect does that have? Because to your point about, you know, uh, DJs who don't really study the craft, mm-hmm. like DJ Premier talks about this all the time. He calls it like, you are, y'all ain't DJs. You're just pushing a bunch of buttons. Sure. And I understand that that's a shortcoming from the community. But what effect does it have on the culture where we're basically letting people come in from outside and then dictate how the culture is produced and distributed? One thing about uh, black people of African descent, and this is across sectors, you know, whether it be literary, arts, dance, theater, um, there's something about this. I remember when uh, Rosie, uh, Roseanne Barr, um, you know, she was going through, you know, a storm Ugh. the other day, and uh, yeah. she said something real interesting um, about how, uh, she said, not to verbatim, but she said something about black people were the most forgiving and, and open-minded. So yeah. we cook let out. anybody in our house. Cook you know out. I mean? was, yeah, the cookout. Stop you know? this cookout. Um, so so she, she made a, a point of, of saying that black people, we're, we're just the most kind-hearted and forgiving and welcoming. And there's what something about that, that is that? Run, Come yeah, on down, right, Rosanne. Run me the wrong way. Get, get you here. a plate. Right. Take you know some of this oxtail to go. Yes, precisely. Yeah. Whereas other uh, cultures, uh, other, you know, as far as racial designations, uh, ethnocultural groups, um, I, I don't think they're so willing to kind of uh, let you, hey, you can just, you know, be no. uh, uh, well, they also have, for a day, be right. uh, you know, indigenous for a day. Right. I don't think so. I don't think it works yeah. like that. And white supremacy so, absolutely doesn't work like that either. Uh, no, like, it does not. No, it does not. So, but we're getting... So it's yeah. something we have to look, you know, within our culture. No, and, and we're, you know, we want to do good, be good, uh, be, you know, good people and uh, with a big heart and, yeah. and open-minded and, you know, open arms. But uh, uh, we, at some point in time, we have to draw the line, yeah. is what I would say, absolutely. right? Yeah, yeah. To avoid the uh, the Norm Kellyification of... Uh, <laughs> of black culture, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Dalton, thank you so much for joining us. It was wonderful to have you. Thank you very kindly. So now we're going to spill the tea this week and we're doing it together because the tea is really hot. 
The other thing is it kind of pissed us off both equally. So Malena and I will normally try to not have conversations <laughs> during the week so we can like have a pretty good interplay when we come in to record. It's really uncomfortable. It's basically ruining our friendship. It, it is. <laughs> this, this, this podcast is like breaking us up as friends. But this but we one, came together to hate. Yeah, we, we really had to both hate on this particular tea topic. So Mel, you know, it's actually upsetting me too much. Why don't you tell the audience about it? So Michelle Williams, the third member of Destiny's Child, mm-hmm. is engaged to a man named Chad Johnson. They have a new reality show on OWN. And she's sort of been making her way back into the spotlight, I think, probably since she performed at Coachella with Beyonce. Mm-hmm. And, you know, she's a, she seems like a great woman. And uh, if you've, I mean, I've been a fan of Destiny's Child forever, mm-hmm. 20 years. So, like, yeah, it's great to see Michelle happy. She was very open about her struggle with depression. And it, it's great to see her in the public eye. So, obviously, it would be exciting that she's getting married. But it turns out she's marrying a racist Mr. Clean. Well... <laughs> Okay, so (laughs) Chad Johnson is a pastor, but he's also a um, a chaplain. So he's a guy that will lead athletes in prayer. He's like one of those hip, uh, sort of like, comes across as one of those cool white guys. He's like that hip youth pastor that kind of grew into his own. People want him to look black. He doesn't look black to me. He Well, he has a bald head. <laughs> yeah. He has strong features. Mm-hmm. Uh, he actually has lips, which is... Oh, right. To- he doesn't have thin, villainous lips. Let's get to what he did wrong. <laughs> no, he's, he's got full lips, and he, he has a beard, a red beard. Uh, so he is a handsome, adjacent dude. Mm-hmm. And... The, the, and because he's saved and she's saved, I think they kind of found each other. Yeah. But the the problem is, and this happens often in interracial relationships, which is why this is difficult to talk about. But oftentimes in interracial relationships, having to bring the white partner up to speed and what you're going through on a day-to-day basis is difficult because even though they love you and even though they, they appreciate you and they want the best for you and they want to be like the, you're the love of your life they often will not understand how difficult it is to navigate life on a day-to-day basis being black. And then the worst thing that happens is when you try to explain to them things that are difficult for you, they try to downplay what it is that you go through. They gaslight you. I can just imagine. Yeah. I don't think we can even like... Like, We guys got to play the clip. We got to play the clip and then go through it like piece by piece because there is so much upness to this clip that I think we have to break it down for the audience. And this is the scene where they are doing a video chat with their therapist together, which is pretty normal. From the reality show, Chad. Is it called Chad? It's ironically called Chad Loves Michelle. Chad Loves Michelle is what <laughs> oh it's called. Oh my God, okay, let's go. How have you all been communicating this week? Communication this week has been good until last night. We had a disagreement. I said something to him on the lines of, well, Chad, because you are not black, you would not understand why I communicate the way I do. Maybe because you didn't grow up around a lot of black people. And so that was very, very offensive to Chad. He talked about a moment of how I said it's because I'm black and you're white and you don't know how black people talk. So he didn't like that. this is going to be an important theme for us to talk about the issue of race. Yeah. And figuring out what's race and what's individual. That's true. Yeah. Okay. So, Chad, tell me what your honest thoughts are. To me, it doesn't matter if you're black, white, green, yellow. It doesn't matter. If you... First of all, first Uh, of all, first of all, first of all. Green? Green? Who is out here getting green (laughs) 
Anybody? That actually sounds kind of good. <laughs> I'm just saying, why when people start talking about you know not being able to see color, they gotta they gotta Because... start with black and then white, and then go off on some like weird color chromas that do not exist in the <laughs> human they spectrum. They erase us because they want to they want to seem like they are so racist and implicitly biased that they think by telling us that they don't see that we're black, it's a compliment. And you're lying next to this guy. Yeah. It it really isn't. When you when you say that you do not see my color, and you've you've said this before, yeah. Mel, you're saying that you don't see me as a human being. Yeah. You have to strip my color away from me in order to love me. And you're talking to Beyonce's friend like that. Please keep going. Let's let's play the rest of this clip. Know that the other person was like, I didn't like the way you said that. Then seek to find some understanding as to why that person didn't like what you said. You know, and let's keep that the issue. Not pull in all these other things, because then it feels like you're just trying to cut, you know, and then it, it feels like you're just trying to push further away. But and and this is not to justify. But yesterday when we had the disagreement, he says, "Did you take your meds today?" Now that. But wait, wait, that was Dr. Tama. I would never go there, and I apologize. But you shouldn't for go there None. regardless. And I don't think you should ever go there with black and white. Okay. Um. Oh my God! Okay, can listen. Uh, okay, let, let me let me get, let me get this thought out. <laughs> okay, because I'm I'm trying to keep it clean here. <laughs> if you are in a relationship with somebody that has mental health issues, if you have if you're in a relationship with somebody, for example, that has depression, like I do, or anxiety, <laughs> like I do, or other conditions, bipolarity, even things like schizophrenia, or never, ever, ever in your life pull that car out to say. Did you take your meds today? It is so manipulative. When somebody has a problem with you, then you work through that problem verbally. You do not then pull their mental health issue out to say, "Well, this is not to do with you disagreeing with me or you having a problem that we need to resolve. This is just your mental health issues acting up right now." That is so f-ed up to do that. Yeah, and it was that moment I really had a problem with the fact that instead of being accountable for his actions, he was so defensive about the race thing that he basically turned into like white women tears and he referred to the therapist and was like I wasn't trying to it wasn't even important for his him to tell his partner that he didn't want to hurt her he needed to tell the therapist that wasn't his intent and this is what people always do I didn't mean to be racist and it's just like you can't even be in a relationship you can't be in a relationship like that you cannot be doing that you saw the other thing that he did too right he's like well you know I shouldn't bring up the mental health thing or I shouldn't bring up the depression but you shouldn't thing, bring up the- <laughs> but you shouldn't bring up the black do you see what, what the- he just So these yes. are both issues that have to do with her. She's black. She has depression. But do you see how he's like, well, if I can't bring up your depression, you can't bring up the black thing. And this is what he's doing on camera. Bro, what the f- <laughs> is wrong with you? All right, continue. And it was after she she said again, and that's and then I, and I got mad and I was like, did you take your meds today? She knows how to cut. He's calling her an angry black woman by saying she knows how to cut, and he's using his skills as a as a speaker and a pastor to like make badly reasoned points and sound reasonable because he's white. Right. So she knows how to cut, apparently, but he knows how to cut up on in front of the camera. I just. Oh my god. And I don't want to make this a black woman thing because I think this exists in a lot of interracial relationships, which is where the specific disempowering and like power dynamic of like. An argument mm. 
and getting a race like that is specific to black women and it happens to us not just by our romantic partners and not just by white people mm. it happens with ev- so it's just like and this is an intimate relationship and you guys are choosing to show this on television and this is what he's choosing to do in the first episode <laughs> what I mean, I'm gonna put this when people are looking for partners especially black people who are like in the late 20s to early 30s and really starting to looking for that person to settle down with I've seen a trend and maybe this doesn't translate to broader society, but I've seen a trend where people say that, you know, it's hard for me to be with a black person because, you know, they have their... Black people are saying that about Yeah, other. black people say that about other black people. Like, black really? men... Really? Yeah. Like, I've, I've seen black women say this, that, you know, black men have their trauma and the things that they grew up with and their struggles. Why am I going to add their trauma and their struggles to my trauma and my struggles? I've seen black men say it, and I've seen black an men excuse say, to yeah. date white women. No, I've seen the same... De- I've seen black men say the same thing. And I've also seen black men talk about, well, the angry black woman stereotype Ugh, whatever. has a grain of truth to it. Yeah, whatever. And, and it's like, so what you're, what you're basically saying is because you have not been able to deal with what racism has done to you, you externalize it by projecting it on the rest of the community. Yeah. That is messed up. So you go and you look for somebody that you feel is like a racial blank slate. Oh my God. Nobody is you, a blank slate. Everybody has contacts. But I, but I see but I see this happen that, yeah. that black people will seek interracial relationships with a white person and there's nothing wrong with doing that. But the, the motive behind it is like, well, you know, they don't have to deal with race stuff. So it's going to be okay. And why, I'm sorry, why is identity stuff? Like, I just feel like when people are doing this kind of like, because um, Tamara Maori does this all the time. <laughs> and so to all her hosts of The Real, they all have to r- defend her husband routinely for yeah. just literally being racist. And it's just like, if you're relationship is so great and you've erased race and you guys are so happy then why are you so stupid (laughs) (laughs) Chad (laughs) no honestly I think that's where we're gonna have to leave it for this week (laughs) thank you so much for listening shout out to Frequency Network for having us and our sister podcasts thanks very much to our show producer Ryan Clark and to our music producer Black Orchid you can find me on Twitter at Andre Demise. You can find me at Melena Williams, and you can find our guest at Dalton Higgins 5. You can listen to the show on the FrequencyPodcastNetwork.com or on Apple and Google Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, Overcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like the show, please support us by heading over to iTunes, leaving us that five-star rating. And if you're feeling extra generous, tell us what you think about the show. We'll see you next week. Bye.